Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, my fellow travelers. Thanks so much for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you would like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash morningsun underscore fellow traveler, or just click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you. All right, everybody. Well, I have a very, very special guest, Laura Capuano, my fourth woman speaker that I've had on here, which is nice. It's always great to hear from women, especially women who have a really powerful voice and um, that, um, I don't know, I actually, I had, my last conversation was also with uh, a woman who I really respect a lot and has, has this, I guess you could say prophetic voice speaking to our current moment in, in our political and religious worlds as they collide in this murky waters. But anyway, how are you doing, Laura? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, the fellow traveler. And um, where are you located again? So I'm in Rochester, New York. I'm originally from Michigan, but we are here in upstate New York, and it feels very similar, very cold. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, we already, I already had uh, school canceled tomorrow. It's going to be like wind chill of like negative 15 or something like that. I know something ridiculous. Yes, my and, kids are hoping very much that that is canceled. <laughs> Still waiting on the word, though. Yeah. Cool. So I met Laura back in 2016. She was the keynote speaker. I used to be involved with Campus Ambassadors, Campus Ministry, and she was the keynote speaker at our Infusion um, retreat that we always, they always had in May. And we we kind of stayed in touch kind of through social media and especially in the past few years, definitely um, been following her work and what she's been had to say and whatnot. And, and um, what was I going to say? Something about, um, was it about, oh, Rochester, Rochester was on the news recently, wasn't it? Was oh, I mean, news? we're always kind of causing trouble up here. So that's what I think. Yeah. I, I swear something about Rochester was on the news recently, wasn't it? Uh, possibly. I mean, our murder per capita rate is not, it, it, it makes an impression. It's not impressive in a good yeah. way, but that yeah. could always be it. <laughs> makes an impression, not impressive. It certainly yeah. does. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting, the dynamics of, of upstate New York. And, and also, like, there's a cultural difference up there because you have a big deaf community, right? Up yeah, in, actually. Yeah, yeah, there is. And uh, Rochester School of Deaf is here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really 
kind of robust, thriving deaf population is in Rochester. It's really fascinating. And you're not far from uh, Lake Michigan, right? Or one of those lakes? We're Lake Ontario. Oh, I Lake actually Ontario. grew up right on Lake Michigan, though. Okay. So you're from Michigan. Yes. Nice. Michigan's a big state. It's pretty, pretty big. It's beautiful, though. So beautiful. Yeah. I've always wanted to visit. It's worth a visit. If you have, like, if you are, like, outdoorsy at all, mm. venturing up to the Upper Peninsula is just breathtaking. Wow. So beautiful. Have you ever heard of the artist Sufjan Stevens? Yes, I have. Yeah. <laughs> he oh, wrote a yes, whole, I'm sure you've listened to his whole album. Yes, Michigan. I have. Yes. <laughs> you yes, put him I on have. the map. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. He's, yep. he's my number one artist, my number one favorite artist. Yeah, very good. That's so funny. Kind of like obscure, I think. Very, so, but... pretty obscure. But at this point, he's become pretty dang famous. Like, you know, if you listen on Spotify, he probably has like, I don't know, 10 million listeners a month. Okay, go ahead. He's gone up in the world and and he's getting up there in age. But I, I don't know if I think he's like found the elixir of youth because he always looks young, even yeah. though he's in his like mid to late 40s now. It's pretty insane. Yeah. But that hey, was that's one not of... getting up there. That's not that old, sir. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm just saying like he looks the same that he did when he was 25, 30. Yeah. You know? When yep. he first came out with Michigan album. Yes. And then I'm sure you listened to the Al- Illinois album. That's the one that put him on the map. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. I, I'm, yeah. I'm so glad you know who he is. Yes. It makes me so really happy. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I was afraid you were going to be like, no, I don't know who that is. I'm like, oh, no. Nope. Yeah. Because nope. most people don't. No, I love an uh, indie singer songwriter. Yep, for sure. And he's, yeah. he's pretty out there. But yeah, yeah he, he had the whole album about Michigan kind of glorifying it. Yeah, he had this dream that he wanted to write one album for every state. For state, <laughs> <laughs> and he got as far as Illinois and Michigan. Yeah, yeah not very far. <laughs> There's some speculation that his one of his recent albums in 2015, the the Larry, uh, not Larry, uh, Carrie and Lowell, which was about his um, mother and father, was actually um, some of those songs were written for Oregon. Oh, okay. Yeah, because some of them have, have to do with the Oregon setting, but then he kind of readapted it. But yeah, he he's a fascinating character, and he mm-hmm. and he writes. He, there's a song he writes about the Upper Peninsula. Yep, it's rightfully so. It is yeah. art worthy for sure. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyway, enough of that fan mm-hmm. guying, fan girl yeah. um, about Sufjan. Um, here on the uh, fellow traveler, we talk about spiritual heritage. This kind of concept that I don't know if I coined it, or maybe subconsciously I heard it somewhere else. Maybe I just readapted it, and but I've looked it up, and I don't think anybody else has used it. But it's this term that I like to use: spiritual heritage. It's kind of, you know, it kind of makes uh, faith and uh, religion, spirituality more organic in a way. It's like it just uh, it's your heritage. It's what you're born into, and part of it is like what's weird about that is like you don't really have much choice in that. Kind of like you're not you don't get to choose who you're born into, what family you're born into. Um, so, but what naturally happens, just like when you're born into a family, like you may really connect with your family, but you may not, you know, you may actually grow up to feel more connected to friends or another group of people. And similarly, when you grow up in a certain faith tradition, you may change and deconstruct and reconstruct and whatnot. So I don't know. I was just having that thought right now, actually. Um, but anyway, spiritual heritage. 
where do you find your roots um, in your tradition? And, and you can talk about a little bit about your, your journey through that. And are there any experiences that along the way that kind of um, rooted you in your faith to the point where you haven't left it, even, even if some things you've had to let go or some things you've had to add that weren't there, you know, um, what is that? How did that look? How did that change happen? And we can talk about it as we go along. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, uh, when I think about like my spiritual heritage, I, um, I think about my mom. Um, I grew up in a Christian home for sure. Um, but my mom was never like married to a denomination or a specific worship style or kind of a way of doing. It was more about a way of being. And she was, I want to, I don't want to say, no, I do want to say it was like a childlike faith. And I don't say that in a way that it makes it sound simple minded. I want to say it in a way that is how it's revered in scripture, like the purity of faith and the simplicity of um, kind of focusing on like the, the things that truly matter. And th so that's kind of what I grew up with. My mom kind of was like, let's pray and read the Bible, go to church. It was pretty simple in that regard. Um, she wasn't one to like get kind of hot over theological debates. She just didn't have any interest in any of that. And so to me, it looked like a way of being, it looked very holistic. Like every aspect of her life was really kind of appeared to me very surrendered to God. And, um, that was expressed in a number of ways uh, that were like pretty typical, I think, of growing up in a Christian home. But more than that, um, some of those aspects that you said, like, were there things that really rooted me? I would say that um, there was like some challenging years in my childhood, um, particularly one year where um, my parents got divorced. And very shortly after that, my brother was murdered. And when that happened, my mom is now a newly single mom to four children and then loses, you know, her son. to so three, three girls um, remaining. And she had to kind of navigate life in all of that trauma after this violent death of her son. It was just excruciating. And I saw my mom not waver from those basic, simple tenets of faith. And this like reliance on Jesus and it was just really pure and sincere. And so there wasn't this, while there was like a whole world of grief that we experienced, there was never this like, why God, why would you ever, because she never had grappled with these kind of these arbitrary secondary doctrinal issues that people get caught up in. She just had like this really simple, sweet faith that I think is extremely powerful because it sustained her during these really horrific times. And I think that for me was probably very, very pivotal and rooting. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, early on, and I've noticed over the years, every year you do this, um, I don't know what you call it, like a ritual of Adam's axe or something like that. Is that what I, is, is that what I'm 
yeah that right <laughs> yeah so that's uh named after my brother it's like a kindness movement um we do 31 days of kindness in my brother's memory in the month of october um he was shot and killed tragically on halloween um and so for the month of october we really spend that month just spreading love and kindness and joy in his memory um, he was a real sweet kid, um, very kind. And that was sort of his legacy or his heritage of faith and kindness. Mm -hmm. um, and that processing of grief as an adult for the first time, how I did that was through, at the time, blogs were pretty cool. So I was <laughs> blogging. Um, I shared about like grief and how I was kind of reprocessing all of that grief as an adult. And I kind of partnered that with doing acts of kindness in his memory. And that connection between faith and kindness was incredibly restorative. And actually, at the time, I didn't understand why that was so healing to do those two things together. But when you look at scripture, it's um, one of my favorite verses is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And it talks about how God expressed um, his kindness to us in, in Christ. Mm. And it's like, if you really zoom out and look at, why did God send Jesus to the world? It was because he's kind. <laughs> it goes back to that simple childlike faith of like, mm -hmm. oh, this really is at the end of the day about kindness and mm -hmm. love and redemption. And, yeah. and to me, that's expressed in a, a number of different ways, but to include justice and equity and love and um sacrificial giving and all of that. So I think that's kind of beautiful, but it's really pretty simple. And so, you know, before we started kind of formally getting on the podcast, we were talking very briefly about deconstruction. And I think the church, you know, the global church, maybe, but for sure, the American church is going through a season of deconstructing. And that's a kind of a buzzword for me when I am sort of stripping away these secondary things, it doesn't feel like I'm deconstructing. It feels like I'm returning to this really pure faith of that I inherited from my mom. I love that. Wow. That's really, that's a really cool way of seeing it. I had a great conversation with this guy, um, Brad Jerzak. He's from Canada and um, he wrote this whole book on deconstruction called out of the embers and he was telling me the whole imagery is that when you burn embers, when you burn a log down all the way down to till it's just the embers, there's no more flame. There's still something there. And that's kind of the idea is like, you want to get, you want to burn away all the unnecessary stuff and get to like, really, what is, what is the, the real foundation of everything? And it's, it is, it's like coming home, right? It's, it's not. It's like when when we live in these, um, I don't know that when when we live in in um, I don't know religious traditions that um, are built upon falsehood or built upon sometimes myths and lies. Um, it's or guilt or pressure, <laughs> yeah, shame, you know, all sorts of negative <laughs> stuff that's like. Um, that ultimately is not the spirit of God, you know, um, then it's, it's not fruitful. And, and it's, and I think the Holy Spirit's always going to be trying to get us to deconstruct, actually, ironically, you have a lot of people who are shaming people for deconstructing, but they don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in people's lives. And that, yeah. 
Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I work, um, I have, I, I kind of have like a coaching business and I work, I do consulting for churches, but I also work with a lot of clients who are staff members or former staff members um, at churches. And it's been really fascinating to see how many um, church members or church staffers are struggling with this like in, immense guilt about that quote deconstruction process. And to me, what I'm seeing in these people, they're like the people who take their faith most seriously are the ones that are struggling the most right now. The ones that have really devoted themselves to um, the practice and the study of the Christian faith are the ones that are most disenchanted and disoriented and disappointed and are kind of um, struggling and being the sense of being in limbo. And I try to reassure them. I'm like, it is God in you that is rejecting these arbitrary aspects of religion that aren't in keeping with the spirit of Christ and who Christ is. And so it, it we should be rejecting these things. We should be processing these things and refining. Um, and I don't know, I always, I've been thinking about this lately that when you're younger, you're taught to pray. But I feel like as our, life develops and our faith develops like our life should look like a prayer our life should look like worship our life look should look like an offering to god and if it if it's these spiritual disciplines but to no end it's like what are we even doing shouldn't we end up looking shouldn't the gospel look very holistic in our life so that to me is like man once you're when you have taken your faith seriously enough that your life is a prayer and your life is a worship set that it, you will be real offended by things that are um, blasphemous. Right. And we think blasphemy is taking the Lord's name in vain. No, it's when we assign something that is not in keeping with who God is. And we assign that to be that we say that's of God. That's blasphemy. That's taking the Lord's name in vain, right? And so we're going to reject those things and we're going to feel some type of way when we see something violating the spirit of God in us. Yeah, I hear you. Mm -hmm. I was thinking also about when you were talking about kindness and compassion. Um, I think what's interesting, I'm not a biblical scholar or biblical linguist or anything, but I think I know enough that um, the word that's often used for kindness is has more to do with mercy and compassion, right? Yeah. Which kind of, it's not just being nice to people. It's actually, it's something of justice too. So having compassion on those with less privilege, showing um, mercy to people who don't deserve it. I mean, that it's a, it's a whole nother ball game than just being nice to people. <laughs> right, right. And, and honestly, even if it was just being nice to people, that's hard enough for us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We struggle enough with that. Oh, that's funny. That's complex <laughs> enough. It's so funny because, you know, when you're, when our kids are little and in school, they're taught to, okay, turn to your neighbor and be kind to, okay, be kind to your friend. All right, friends, turn to your neighbor. And I'm like, man, we still struggle with turning to our neighbor and being kind to a friend. <laughs> so it's like we, this returning, it may seem simplistic to return to kindness, 
But man, it is a complex and challenging thing for us to do. Once we have mastery over being kind at all times, then we can make it complicated. But for now, let's just go back to the basics. Are there any stories of kindness, compassion, mercy that you that really come to mind when you think about the years that you've been doing that Adam's acts of kindness? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, some of my favorite moments have been, I mean, we've had some really comical moments because people like get weirded out when you, people are so used to transactional relationships. They're like, but what do you want from me? You couldn't possibly just be, you know, paying my fare to go on this bus. It's like, well, no, I actually am, but now it feels weird and I don't know how to behave. So it's, we've had some really like funny interactions. Um, but some of my favorite things are just really simple um, moments. I always, and this is something I do, I try to do like throughout the year, whenever I go to the store is to buy a little candy bar or a little something for um, the cashier uh, when I'm going to the grocery store. And the like look of absolute shock and delight is so sweet because it's like it's literally just a candy bar but people act like what me for me you thought of me it's so cute and they always say do you want me to leave this out and I'll say yeah and then at the end they say well it's actually just for you so that's why I didn't want you to pack it up and they're like really it's just so simple but it's really sweet um so that's one thing and then also another thing I keep going through the year is a kind of a personal rule is I try to never think a compliment. If I think a kind thing, I try to say it out loud. So I will compliment a stranger. I will compliment anyone. I'll be like, Ooh, cute glasses. <laughs> I just kind of say it. Um, because I love, uh, just, it really does make people feel good. And I think it, that is contagious and the, they go into their next interaction with just a little bit more, um, joy and a little bit more grace in their interaction with their people. So I love that. Um, but I guess um, as far as like a key memory, I, I had one, um, I, I, Adam, my brother was 17 when he was killed. And I recently heard a story of somebody who bought 17 like scratchy lottery tickets and put it in somebody's mailbox. Um, just being like, good luck. You know, this is in memory of a 17 year old boy. And just like those little things where uh, people are like trying to spread a little cheer. I think that's pretty cool. It's nice how simple it is, but yet with how simple it is, why is it so difficult? You know, <laughs> I know because it requires like intention. It requires mm -hmm. focus. It, it requires. Yeah. And then, mm -hmm. you know, the what's interesting, too, is I think of these small I think of the little things that trigger grief when I think of um, just the other day. Um, this is so silly, maybe, but. I heard somebody say, oh, we lost him. And the, it was a video of somebody, it, they were fishing and the fish got off the hook and they go, oh, we lost him. And I was instantly transported back to this 11 year old girl. When my mom came home from the hospital, she'd been there and you know, called in the middle of the night to go in. And she walked in and she said, we lost him. And this, oh my goodness. it was like this small little PTSD. phrase about fishing. And it just instantly took me back to this like world of grief. And, but if a small thing like that can trigger this tidal wave of grief, what if it's all also possible that a small moment of kindness can create a tidal wave of 
love and compassion? And what if that can grow and swell into like a tsunami of care for people? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows into a giant, giant tree. Right. Birds of the air rest there, rest on its branches. Or the kingdom of God is like a tiny piece of yeast that goes into a big loaf of dough and eventually takes over the entire dough. Right. I, I love that kind of imagery of the kingdom of God. It's, it's, um, I think, you know, I think Jesus was speaking to people who were small and didn't have power, you know, and yeah. they didn't have a lot of um, voice in where they lived. And when he's saying this to them, he's saying, you get, you don't have to do much. You just have to do it with love. Right. Yeah. And um, wow. So how did you end up coming getting into like speaking and whatnot. Yeah, that's I'm probably just being mouthy my whole life. <laughs> They're like, this lady won't shut up. She'll be out there. Let's give her a platform. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it started, um, I was, I think I was always a bit of a storyteller and um, was never particularly shy, was kind of willing to do, to get up there. And so it started when I was young, just being the person that, they're like, well, we need someone to do, give a testimony or we need, we need someone to say this or open up the evening with whatever. And I think probably for, you know, I grew up in a fairly like an affluent suburban area of West Michigan. There weren't a lot of testimonies at the time, like mine, right? Like these weren't hardened, you know, drug users that had seen a thing or two. We were kids in Grand Haven, Michigan, like a pretty protected town, but I happened to have like this kind of um, sort of challenging life story um, for that time. And, and so I think probably having that story to tell invited me into opportunities to share. Um, And so uh, that's probably how it started initially was just like speaking at my youth group or, you know, kind of leading young life or at Bible studies and that type of thing. And then Uh, that always sort of just grew. It kind of just happened organically, to be honest, that one thing led to the next. Um, And to this day, I've never really marketed or like uh, put my name in the hat for a big speaking event. It's just somebody sees me at this thing and then I get invited to the next thing. And those things sometimes grow and it can be a thousand people at a women's conference, or it can be like, Hey, maybe you don't do this, but would you come and talk to moms, like mothers of preschoolers. It's like 25 women. I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> so I love it. It To me, I don't really care about the size of the group. I just love connecting with people um, in that way, through story, through scripture, through um, vulnerability and transparency. Wow, that's really cool. Was there any moment where you it clicked and you're like, oh, this is what I'm gonna do as like a is this is this your full-time career? So currently, so I do speak um and I like I said, I do the coaching and consulting as well. Um, but I am presently the associate director at um a nonprofit here in Rochester. We serve um families and children that are made vulnerable by their circumstances. So basically system involved families, um, particularly youth experiencing foster care. Um, so that's sort of my work, my area of work. Um, but I I continue to speak and uh, do coaching and consulting. So 
kind of a little bit, a little bit of everything. I'm a busy woman because I also have, as you know, five children. And so life is very full at the moment for sure. Yeah. And I remember a a big topic that you talked about when you were the keynote speaker at Infusion was um, your adopted children as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So we have um, five children three biological girls and two boys who came to us through adoption. So we had two girls adopted for the first time and then had our last biological child and then we adopted one final time. So both the boys came to us through two different kinds of adoption, um, but uh, are both now in fully open adoption, which means their birth parents are involved in our lives and we visit them and they're welcome to come visit us at any time. And we're in regular contact through video messaging and um, kind of texting and updates and all that. So they're real involved. It's pretty cool. Wow. I guess that's really, you know, of all the circumstances, that's actually probably an ideal one where they can still have that connection to their biological parents. Yeah, absolutely. So we, I'm a real big advocate in actually the work I do is because uh, the goal is to prevent uh, adoption whenever possible. Um, so we really try to strengthen birth families for family preservation is really a goal. Um, but when adoption is necessary, whenever it's possible to have, um, just those strong connections to birth family, it's invaluable, especially, you know, in our case, both of my boys are black. And so like that forming of their racial identity and that understanding of their ancestry and the struggles that they'll face as black Americans. Like I can't prepare them for that. Um, in case your listeners can't tell, I'm just your basic white lady. (laughs) So, so I can't walk them through what does it mean to be a black man in America? Um, especially during, as we've seen all these, I don't even want to say rising racial tensions because, um, it's always been bad, but as it's been things a, have come. a slow simmer. <laughs> it has been, yeah. And yes. And so as things have become more at the forefront and people are becoming more aware of it, mm. though that's what's been, I think the awareness has risen. And yeah. um, those are conversations we can't have alone. We need their families to speak into that stuff. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's really important because it does get kind of complicated, doesn't it? I mean, I it's now February 2nd. So we're in, in black history month and obviously you're not a black person. So it's like <laughs> awkward to ask you questions about this, but at the same time, what makes it not awkward is that you do have some experience in with this and sensitivity to it. And that you do have two black adopted sons mm-hmm. who are very cute. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty cute. Yeah. They, are, they seem very, they're very cute. Yeah. Um, and they're growing up too. Holy cow. They're getting bigger. Right. Yeah, my older son is uh, just about six feet tall, so I look up to him now. What? And I'm a tall, I'm Tom five nine, so I'm not a short woman. So I look up to him, and I'm like, "Oh, this is enough, sir." And he's got muscles and stuff. Hey, five nine is pretty tall. I think I, yeah. only have, I think I only have one inch on you. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. So being, you know, ever since 2020, it feels like um, Black History Month ha- kind of has a different feel to it it's kind of become more real and I think a big part of it is like during the pandemic everything got it we got so exposed and you know I was 
just thinking about like a metaphor where I was talking about how it's been it's been a slow simmer or like a like a a, a, a silent not a silent but a low hum you know that's just always been in the background but there was so much noise up front that we couldn't really hear that hum and then the pandemic came and all the noise up front had went down and then the low hum get, kept getting louder and louder and then the rest of us were like okay we need to wake up I mean and I'm sure you've been ahead of the the game then I'm more ahead of the game than than most of us but you know that was definitely a turning point for me like uh, recognizing we're talking about how like even when when we met in uh in fusion in 2016 so much has changed since then right like and I think probably everybody has grown in some way shape or form since then I mean three years into the pandemic and here we are and it is so interesting because yeah like as you were saying I think it's really honorable that you're able to still keep that connection with their biological um, parents and and have that connection with what does it mean to be black as an as an identity because so often you know it's sad because on one end like you don't want children to not have parents but at the same token I, I've heard so many stories and and known so many folks that have been adopted either from Haiti or Africa or wherever and they're they don't fit into their neighborhood and community and they have an identity crisis because they're like who am I I feel like a white black person you know I'm not yeah. really I'm not really sure has that how's that been navigating that yeah, I think what you're describing is the, the transracial adoptive experience. And what I mean by transracial adoption is when a family uh, of, a, of one race adopts a child from a different race. And so that can really, whatever the racial dynamic is, honestly doesn't really matter. The experience is fairly universal in that the transracial adoptee will be raised and perceive it will be perceived by the outside world as whatever race they present as, but culturally they've been raised in a different racial identity. So my sons are both black. We say they are blackity black black because we want them to be proud of their blackness, and they um, they feel very proud of their melanin, and they are like loving that, that they are black. And so that's been awesome and um, really great to see that racial identity develop and that sense of um, pride in who they are and they are, they love exactly who God made them to be. But the reality is that there is they are raised in cultural whiteness. And so there are times that that impacts how they engage in the world. And um, it impacts how they relate to their black peers. It relates how they or it, it affects how they relate to their white peers. Um, I've, I've heard very uh, frequently that transracial adoptees feel most at home and most accepted in most themselves when they're around other, transra other transracial adoptees. That what feels most comfortable, safe, and familiar is people who had that same experience of being a black or brown individual raised in cultural whiteness. And so how we navigate that is we, you know, we try to create opportunities for them to be, well, first of all, we just have like a diverse 
friend group. We're mindful of the churches that we attend. We're mindful of the school districts that we would choose to be in and um, the role models and the mirrors that they see. They need to see black mirrors. Um, it's like, I can't imagine as a young girl growing up and never having contact with women, I would have a hard time. I'd feel it'd be disorienting to be like, what does womanhood look like? Um, and if I was only relying on men to tell me what it means to be a woman, I'd be like, mm, I don't know. That's not a perfect analogy because there's so much complexity to blackness that transcends gender, I believe. Um, but it's the closest kind of analogy I can think of. Um, so, you know, we also are mindful of having them in adoptee spaces. And so my son, he kind of, he, he attends these adoptee lounges with other um, black transracial adoptee boys around his age. And they kind of process identity questions and they talk about life and sports and hair care and what it means to be black in America. What does it mean to like, you know, sports, it's everything. I mean, it's kind of all the normal topics and also all the heavy stuff and processing birth parent reunion questions or identity questions. Um, so pretty cool stuff, uh, but it's definitely complex and you have to be really intentional um, to adopt well. And even when you do that, there are still a lot of gaps and holes. And so they need mentors and black community to be surrounding them and speaking into their life because what we offer isn't really enough. Wow, it's, it's really complex <laughs> and yeah. complicated, isn't it? Like, and I don't even know where you get the wisdom to go about that, you know? Like, how has that even developed? Like, how have you even gained the vocabulary or the consciousness to think this way? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, like I, I saw, you know, what you described feeling in 2020, I actually saw a lot of white parents that have black children go through that same process that you went through. And I saw that and I could not help but think, oh my goodness, you're just becoming aware of this and you've been raising black children. You may even have uh, black teenagers and you've not processed this before. So for me, I always, um, I, you know, I, I think people think I care about racial justice and biblical justice and social justice because I have black children, but I would argue that I had no business being open to adopting black children if I hadn't had a long history of caring about racial and social justice long before I had black children. Um, so, you know, some of my earliest speaking events were listening circles regarding racism and anti-racism. And these, these were a long time ago, well before this was like a trending topic. Um, so this has been an area of study for me, an area of um, growth and development and listening and learning. But that the listening and learning phase was uh, was a long time ago. It's an ongoing process always. Um, but I've had a diverse um, kind of group of people speaking into my life from from a very long time ago, and I've always really valued those voices. And so this for me, 2020, I was like, it was more like, oh, the Olympics. I was like, oh, I've been training for this. <laughs> like, I know this stuff. Well, and lucky so, you. <laughs> <laughs> so when people were paying attention, that's why I was so outspoken. And mm -hmm. people, why won't you shut up? I'm like, I've always been talking about this. People are just asking now. They're actually mm. open to hearing. 
So um, this isn't when I'm going to sit on the sidelines now. So I wanted to leverage that following that I had. I wanted to leverage that influence. Anybody that was open to listening, I'm like, oh, you're willing to get your feelings hurt a little bit? Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, man, that's crazy. It, it is, it is um, culture shock when the lights turn on when it comes to recognizing um you know the effects of racism long term over history even all the way up to our social moment to this very current moment we're living in this moment that has been formed through history and i think so often people want to think well so often people don't study history um and so often the history we've been taught has been has been taught by the the people who won or who had power or who wanted to spin the story into a myth you know and but here we are actually living within a historical moment that is built upon the building blocks of, of the past. And looking back, even it's insane to think like even my parents were born before the Civil Rights Act was passed. Like it's yeah. mind blowing, actually, to think about. Um, and so even just within their lifetime, a lot has changed for sure. Things have gotten better, but at the same time, there's still the ripple effects. And and it's interesting, like there's the concept of whiteness and, and it's not controversial at all, right? <laughs> yeah. Saying no. white people have, cult, uh, have a culture. Yeah, that, that yeah. goes great. <laughs> they, no, because it's like, it's like telling the fish that they live in the water, you know? It's like, what do you mean? What water? It's everywhere, you know? <laughs> There's only water. There's only water. What are you talking about? No, there's air too, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah. true. Um, it is. You know, and it gets so controversial because it gets mixed up in all these big ideas like uh, critical race theory. I hate that term. It, I just, it's, it gets so tiring to hear. The concept of whiteness, um, mm -hmm. that gets murky, doesn't it? it? It gets even hard to define and hard to pinpoint and and it has so much semantic baggage that goes along with like different academic ideas like critical race theory which has become this big buzzword that people don't even know what it means yes and yes <laughs> we are so offended by something we have no business no, no desire to learn about <laughs> I think this has been one of the most disillusioning things for me as far as the Christian church in just just the past three years because pre-2020 I felt like if you ask Christians about like where do we stand in terms of you know racial justice it's like yeah we we stand on the side of you know those who are disenfranchised and and who was it that fought to end slavery who was it that fought to end um segregation it was Christians for the most for a large part you know and and then I thought that when the George Floyd stuff happened, that Christians were going to rally. I thought that's what was going to happen. Yeah. And I was like, what is happening? Yeah. You know, what is happening? And no. And I keep hearing, I keep hearing, I was talking about this in my last interview, Um, you know, that, that scripture from, I want to say it's Isaiah. In the last days, there will be those who, who call right wrong and wrong right. But I see that. You know, I saw that in 2020. I saw people who called anti-racism wrong. Yeah. 
and whatever is opposite of anti-racism which I don't know why you'd want to be the opposite of anti-racist <laughs> like yes <laughs> like be careful you're treading on some thin ice there pretty uh, racist ice there pretty racist ice there. <laughs> yeah I think yeah. you know is there I want to be charitable though do you think there is a is a way in which anti-racism or critical race theory or, or this discussion of whiteness is kind of like semi-academic do you think there's a way in which it goes wrong in certain ways I mean sure you know I think there's a way in which any any well-meaning conversation can go down the tubes but I think that to me the more important work is to reflect on like ourselves right if you are doing if, if somebody is doing the actual work of examining and uprooting their own racist mindsets I don't nobody cares what you think about CRT nobody because they they nobody you know what nobody has ever asked me well why don't you why don't you preach CRT why don't you study this why don't, nobody's ever said it because they know where I stand nobody challenges me on that it's when people are more concerned with the harm of CRT than they are the harm of racism that all of a sudden it's like a big conversation um and to be honest like it, we can I don't think the church should have to take an academic look at this problem because you know justice is so important to God scripture is you know there are twice as many references to justice in scripture as there are references to prayer um and almost three times as many references as to love and Christians love to talk about love and they love to talk about prayer but they do not seem as committed to justice even though a much larger percentage of scripture is committed to justice and so to me I think um if we're really kind of going back to that heritage of faith right if we went back to like my mom Sandy I call her Hurricane Sandy if we all went back to Hurricane Sandy's view of faith she's just like read your bible pray love people and if we if we read our bible justice is all over scripture and God delights in justice and we talk about justice being messy and it's complicated it's not the nature of justice actually the definition of justice is actually perfection it's rightness it's correctness it's equity and fairness and good and so it's actually not messy at all it's actually the tidiest possible thing if something egregious happens and justice is served every that means everybody is satisfied because justice is actually correct right um and so to me it's just interesting that we I've spent, I feel like I've, I've heard the church spend more time arguing, defending and attacking the mechanism by which we explore racism or anti-racism instead of attacking the sin of racism in our own hearts and in our own institutions, in our own churches. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's really well said in my tradition. Um, I was actually discouraged from the work of justice. 
I was discouraged and I was told that's the work that of the world and society and government does, but the church is just is just involved with saving souls, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's really bad theology. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, God defines his kingdom by justice. Uh-huh. One of the scriptures I think of is Psalm 97, one through two. It's like the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Um, let the many islands be glad clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Mm. The wow. foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. And yeah. we are like, oh, that's the work of the world. <clears throat> I sincerely hope not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm, yeah. And I, and I think also like within, um, you know, theologically too, um, some t- in some traditions that I'm sure you're familiar with, um, there's a big emphasis on like the penal aspect of of God's justice, and that God's justice is just about like um, punishing wrong, rather yeah. than the reordering and reconciling and putting putting things right. Yes. And I and I think I think we need to think of justice that way. Yes. Where, and I think that's the Jewish understanding of justice too. Sedek in, in Hebrew had Sedek in Hebrew, the word for righteousness is the same word for justice. And it has to do with the, the reordering and the putting things right in yeah. within society, within, within um, government, within the world, like putting God's world right. And, and obviously, you know, there's other things too. I mean, there's, there's also the concept, like, like I was telling you, like in my tradition, being discouraged from the work of justice, caring for the poor, caring for um, racial justice and whatnot, because, or even for the sake of healthcare or whatever. Social, um, just social justice. Just social justice in general, right? That was a, that was a bad word, it was taboo, because <laughs> it has to do with these godless people um, who only care, who have like some sort of nefarious um nefarious i don't know uh what's the word like like they they say they they sound like they're up to good but really there's something nefarious behind what they're trying to do you know and it's not (laughs) altruistic it's like um yeah there's like an ulterior ulterior motive motive. that's what it is they have some sort of nefarious ulterior motive they're trying to steal your children or something uh, steal their souls so they're trying to get involved in social justice like as if it was this boogeyman and and that came about I mean, in 2020 you you had christians being like beware beware of those those don't woke, be deceived <laughs> you, yeah don't be deceived by those woke christians who care about social justice <laughs> they care about <laughs> equity for others when you hear them talking about the poor <laughs> Uh, Listen, listen, I was uh, reported to my church at the time I was on staff at a church and I was reported for um, spouting socialist beliefs. Do you know what my socialist beliefs were? It was scripture. I was was like, oh, no, give it all to the poor, sir. That's not my idea. That's not me being socialist. That's actually what Jesus says to do. So bye. (laughs) And, you know, what do you do when Jesus seems to be saying something so clearly he's not but nobody does that, you know, no, nobody actually gives all they have to the poor. So no. that that's the thing, like, we should be humbled, and we should really question ourselves and pray and fast and be like, well, Jesus, what do you mean for me? What do you what do you actually want me to do? 
Um, well, and if you do that, you know, in many of our, you know, mainstream churches, if you were to say, you know, we're going to pray and fast and then come away from this feeling like we're supposed to challenge your, our church and our people and ourselves to give, uh, give money to the poor, we're now deviating pretty hardcore from the teachings of the American church, right? Mm. Which is to save and to give it all to the church and to, mm. you know, like kind of create, have wise financial decisions and mm. financial peace. And none of that is what, it, I mean, a lot, there's a lot, listen, everything I said about how many scriptures there are about love and prayer mm. and how there's way more about justice. There's even more about money. And oh some, yeah is investment and some of that is wisdom but a lot of that is giving 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 mm -hmm. giving right and not storing up wealth you know for ourselves right and you're you're saying something about um you mentioned something about um how we often think of that justice means it's going to be something messy and it doesn't have to be because it's actually the reordering and and we Correct. should be happy about the reordering and putting right of society we should mm -hmm. we should joy we should have joy about that but where it gets quote unquote messy is when those who have power and privilege have to lay it down mm -hmm. and that that's kind of like the difficult part of it and yeah and like you well, know it, it it's difficult unless we claim to love Jesus and model mm -hmm. our life after him. And then it should be very easy, right? Because yeah, says position of power and privilege more than being seated at the right hand of God in a place of total perfect communion with, mm -hmm. with the creator. Yeah. Like, reading the, the whole, the whole book of uh, the whole first chapter of Ephesians about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in him. We have all this according to the counsel of his will according to the, his abundance grace according from like the source the source that we have all of these spiritual blessings from is in this eternal source and it's not um and we shouldn't be stingy with it you know i don't think he doesn't give yeah. it to us to hoard it and not only that but he modeled himself from a position of perfect power mm -hmm. and privilege and i mean literally all the power in the world to do whatever he wants with in the universe, not even the world, he descended, he left that, he kind of sacrificed his privilege for the sake of mm. us. And he came into the world to meet us where we're at and to invite us into this inheritance. Right. Mm. And so we have the perfect model of what a, what it looks like to be in a position of privilege and power and say, I, I'm going to sacrifice that to enter into the world and to show love and to invite people into um, this place of shared inheritance mm. um, instead of hoarding it for myself. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That, that is, that's deep. It's definitely deep. And it, it's great to kind of throw ideas off you and hear your ideas as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, are there any other, um, so you, you came to this place where you've been doing these t speaking events and you've been speaking from, and you've been speaking out, of course, through social media and whatnot, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, that went uh, great for me. They went great for you. Yeah. Yeah. People loved it. Nobody had any complaint. <laughs> I didn't get, I didn't get death threats at all. <laughs> you got death, threat, death oh threats? Oh my gosh. No oh, way. The racially charged 
racially violent and sexually violent language that was directed at me was you wouldn't believe it it was shocking wow yeah it was that's crazy you know how did you how, how did you deal with that you know how did you cope with that you know um Mostly by stubbornly just doubling down. (laughs) (laughs) Thick skin. And taking screenshots because I needed receipts. But, Mm -hmm. you know, know, to be honest, like for the most part, you know, I, when I felt like if it was, there are people, obviously there are trolls and and Mm. those aren't, you're not going to make a difference with those people. So for the most part, that was just like a block and kind of a deep breath and move forward. But it, what surprised me is how many Christians, Mm. not death threats, but how many Christians were incredibly hurtful. Um, Mm. Even expressing um, not support for our vice president as like, I'm a huge fan um, necessarily. I, I didn't really know a ton about her, but I did celebrate the fact that she was uh, the first br- woman vice president and the first like brown woman. I was like, mm-hmm. that was exciting. Um, and it was like, Christians called me an abortionist and a, you know, all of this stuff for, and I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't even say anything about that. <laughs> that's a really, that's a really lazy jump to go right. Uh-huh. To that. You know, it's like, so some of the, just some of the, the hurtful language and assumptions. And I think it's hilarious too, when that accusation of being an abortionist, I'm like, for how vocally pro-life you are, I am actually devoting my life to family preservation. Mm-hmm. I have adopted children. Like I wouldn't claim to be pro-life because I, I I couldn't live with myself if I didn't wasn't engaged in the work to actually care for mm. children who need parents and yes. helping parents who have unexpected pregnancies. So for me, it's like a matter of integrity to, mm. if I'm going to claim to be pro-life, yeah. that I better do something about it. So I'm like, sure. how am I the abortionist in the group all of a sudden? <laughs> You're the <laughs> one who's got your two kids and your white picket fence, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway. Just, yeah, from the cheap seats, people say a lot of, yeah. a lot of comments. So I was, yeah, it was hurtful, oh, yeah. but. I think of though Jesus words about pers- blessed are you when you're persecuted. I'm sure that kind of had some encouragement for you. Yeah. Degree. You know, I, I guess, I mean, it's so funny because I don't, I think Christians, this relationship with like the war on culture mm-hmm. and we're being persecuted and we can't mm-hmm. even this and that. And I'm like, none of, we're not supposed to be protecting our freedoms. No. I don't think <laughs> we're not supposed to be protecting. That's a very American mm-hmm value it's not a christian value yeah at all and that like that kind of meshing of like american patriotism and christianity Mm. is so confusing because america is about like you know if you work hard enough your dreams will come true and you know save say you know like dog eat dog and i'm proud to be an american it's like none of this should be our identity we're supposed to give it all away Mm. we're supposed to love people more than ourselves we're supposed to pour out we're supposed to be like it should be about equity and restoration mm. and kindness and mercy and grace. That should be what our life should look like a prayer, not like mm. a, a fight to protect our freedoms. And I earned it. So blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's, a, that's American it values, is. That's not Christian values. Well, it's very individualistic. It's also 
like going back to the idea of mythology too it's like protecting this myth of and you know people don't want to say don't like the idea of whiteness but i think like in inherently intrinsically like when you just think of like think of an american person you know mm-hmm. what's a what's in a person that represents america you think of a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes basically yeah. me but skinnier and buff <laughs> holding like a rifle yeah holding a rifle and he has a gun in his hand and yeah and he's a bit or he he could be a businessman too but he could also be a blue collar worker as well Mm -hmm. and so like there's this there is this identity that um that we're taught subconsciously and then um when when we're consciously trying to fight against that identity you're gonna you're gonna step on toes Mm -hmm. it gets that's where it gets i don't think yeah it is it's like theologically it's clear you know theologically it's clear but in lived experience it's hard because identity is gets so wrapped up doesn't it it's it really does interesting yeah and and people don't want to admit that there is identity too and i think that's also a struggle too Mm -hmm. it's very interesting yeah yeah it's fascinating and i think that like when we view our the aspects of our identity to be in competition with our identity in Christ, then we're very threatened by these aspects of identity, right? Yeah. And we want to kind of buck against that a little bit. Um, but when we acknowledge it and it becomes like kind of too consuming, then we can lose sight of our identity in Christ. Yeah. And so it's it's like anything where you have to have like sort of a nuanced view and this like kind of scope and perspective. And it's, it's hard for people to maintain that. Um, Mm. I think there's a sense of belonging that comes with uh, people bond more over what they hate than what they Mm. love. You can talk about what you and I could talk about Sufjan Stevens for a couple minutes to talk about something that we hate probably for much longer like racism we keep talking about it (laughs) Um, like what we just did (laughs) for the past 45 minutes exactly exactly right (laughs) and that's it is it people bond more over what they hate so it is easier to have a common enemy and it is easier to have a, a creative villain it's easier to um focus on like that part than it is to kind of shift over and think solutions or think to what what should be striving for and so in an incident of you said george floyd or mm-hmm. any pick any number of incidents of police brutality even in the last couple yeah. of weeks there have been a Harry number Nichols. yeah many of them and um if we look at those situations it is easier to say well but what but what did they do to deserve it or what mm. i don't know all the detail i don't have the whole story i need to see that video yeah. i need all the facts we don't know the whole thing it's easier to vilify mm-hmm. a young black man in our country than it is to disrupt the systems that allowed p- police brutality mm. to thrive and flourish and get to the point that it is right now yeah and it seems like if you ask the average person like the average person which is like you know probably 
95, 99% of people do believe that we need some sort of reform and change that I, I don't think there's anybody who's like, yeah, everything's fine. Nothing to change here. We're crushing it. <laughs> We're crushing it. I don't think there's anybody, whether conservative or progressive, who's like, yeah, there's nothing to fix here. I mean, but it is interesting, like from a conservative perspective, like, what do you have to save exactly? What are you trying to conserve exactly at this point? <laughs> it really makes you question. Yeah. I don't know it, what you're, you're, you're saving a straw man that you've created. I don't know. It's very interesting. Uh, but yeah. I, I was trying, I was trying to end it on a positive note, thinking about like, what are some positive experiences that you've had in this journey of dealing with racism and or even with, even with your, your two boys, like mm-hmm. um, what experiences, I mean, I think it's pretty evident that you've given them a decent life and you've given them a really well-rounded, you know, experience and understanding and ability to really um, explore their identity mm-hmm. in a healthy way. So, I mean, wh- what does that look like? What have some ex- positive experiences in that? Yeah, I think that probably, I mean, for me personally, um, a positive is that when things got really hard, right? When things get, when the death threats are coming in and people are calling me an end lover and whatever else, um, those things, as dark as those times got, my um, commitment to this work only grew stronger. And for me, the, the positive was that I'm now in work where racial justice and racial equity is like palpable. It is valued. I, I mean, I work, uh, I'm, you know, one of the only, there's two white women in, on staff where I work and, um, we're led and, um, uh, run and founded by black women. And so it's just a pretty cool space to be in. So to me, the positive is that my devotion to this work, um, kind of earned me, uh, the right and reputation to be working amongst these amazing women doing the work that I really value. So I think that's at, for a personal note, that's really positive and been, it feels like I'm, my life is a prayer now. It feels like I'm being the church outside of a church setting, but it feels like, oh, this is what it means to be doing the work of the gospel. Um, and so that's been really awesome. As far as my boys, I would say, um, or just from my family in general, just seeing their little activist hearts, you know, my, the way, you know, one daughter used um, her writing to kind of um, speak truth to power. And that was really cool. One daughter used her art to create murals, um, you know, in response to like, during the times of the protests and stuff. Um, Those were really meaningful times um, with the boys and their development of what does justice look like and what does it look like to be part of this collective black community and just seeing you know I'm I sh- you know I'm at a protest with my then 12 13 year old son right and um just the warm acceptance of there was no like, oh, you have a white mom, you lost your black card. There was none of that. It was like, you know, it, it truly is a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And um, it was cool just to see 
how um, really meaningful that was for them to be kind of welcomed into that and and have like this moment of solidarity there. Um, and I would say too that a positive is that uh, my boys are is awful as all of this has been, my boys are actually safer in a world where people wear their racism on their sleeve. And this smoked out a lot of racist beliefs and thoughts. And my boys are safer in a world where we know, we know who those people are. Um, so I'll take an outspoken bigot over like a low-key racist person any day because I, I it helps us to know um what to look for and who's safe and who's not. And so I think I think it's exposed a lot of things, but I think probably the overarching thing that has been the most positive is I have seen growth and change in people that I really did not think would grow or change. And it's never too late for people to stretch their thinking and challenge themselves and examine racist mindsets and ask hard questions. And it's actually like really freeing. It's so funny when we talk about systemic racism, people get so upset. And I'm like, guys, just embrace systemic racism because we all agree racism is an issue. But if it's not systemic, then it's just individual. <laughs> if we agree that we're all a part of a racist system, no one even is gonna ask you specific questions. You can work on that privately, but like, let's just attack the system together. Um, so that's like, you know, for me, the positive has been, I've seen people make steps, um, slow, late, small, but, their steps. And so I'm, I am encouraged. And from an anthropological view, we are moving in the right direction, but you have to zoom out to an anthropological view, which can be depressing, but the good news is we are making progress. And I just believe that God will, um, bring restoration. I mean, that's our job as believers to do that. And so I'm encouraged by that. And I'm not threatened by secular approaches to justice, um, because I know that I'm, working really hard to use a biblical view of this and to approach it that way. And so if the church shows up and does what it was designed to do based on scripture, then we don't have to be threatened by a secular approach. We can just redeem it and partner and move forward. And so I find that all encouraging. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I like how um, you were saying you found a, a job where it feels like you're actually taking the kingdom of God with you. Mm -hmm. It's that whole concept of integration. Like I think of Jesus when he, when he talked about the loaf, the kingdom of God being like a loaf that you add the yeast and it eventually um, fills the entire loaf. Um, so often, and this was easier, I think before 2020, it was easier for us to compartmentalize like, Oh, here's, this this uh into muffin tins rather than into a loaf you know <laughs> here's mm -hmm. here's the politics and here's the church and here's my personal life and here's this but at the end of the day jesus wants to take all the dough stick it together and when we're living when we're breathing when we're praying moving we are um we are living we're living we are the living body of of christ yeah and it's way and it's nice when you finally find yourself in a 
job where where you can actually it feels like you're not just punching a time clock but you're actually participating in the kingdom of god and and even for those who do feel like you're you're just punching a clock and leaving and, and living in a completely different life when you leave work or when you're in work you know there's ways you can you can integrate integration it takes time right it's like but it's all you have to be intentional and, and yeah. you have to I think at the very least, if you desire, if you desire to have a Christ-filled life, then you're gonna, you know, it's it's gonna happen. But yeah. Well, Laura, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me and listening and asking good questions. Absolutely. Thanks for um what's the word? Being allowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for being a loud mouth. No, you have the you have this capability of saying so much in such a short amount of time. It's incredible. Oh, thank you. So many, so many deep thoughts that we can chew on, listen back. Um, enter thanks for entertaining me. Or what's yeah. the word? Not entertaining. What's the uh, there's another word I'm thinking of, but anyway. <laughs> um, thanks for coming on, the fellow traveler and being yeah. a fellow traveler. And and what are some ways that people can get connected with your ministries and whatnot? Oh, sure. Um, so laracapuano.com um, is my website. I there, you know, all the old blogs are up there still. If people want to go back and see more about Adam's acts and kind of learn more about the story um, of his life and his, and sadly his death as well, that's all on there. Um, people can follow me on social media uh, at Lara Capuano on Instagram or Lara Provencal Capuano on <clears throat> Facebook. Um, yeah, so those are kind of the, the ways to follow along. Um, and I'm also happy just to, if people wanna you know ask questions, there's a contact form through the website. They can contact me through that um, or for speaking engagement requests or anything like that, that can all go through the website or a direct message through any of my social media. Uh, also, that's where death threats go, just right through my direct messages. <laughs> you, nice. have any, you have any of those you want to add? Just if you have any if you have any death threats, just don't bother. <laughs> Although if you if you've made it this far in the podcast, you probably aren't one of those people. So <laughs> you never know. You'd be shocked how committed some of my trolls are. <laughs> so I went all the way to the last minute, and this is what I have to say about everything you had to say. <laughs> yeah. Where? Do these people have all the time in the world? Like, yeah, it's like are you a, are you a fan? Are you a little bit of a fan? Yeah, a little bit. You, might, you hate I think, me. Yeah, I think you secretly like me. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, I have. I think I don't know about all the people's trolls, but for I can tell you, my trolls are very consistent and very devoted. I'm actually very proud because wow. they show up for me over and over. They hate me, but they show up so diligently. <laughs> Aren't you like somewhat glad that they're listening? Yeah, I've noticed a little change here and there over time. I'm like, oh, you used less less language in that message. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That was yeah. slightly less racist. Still I, racist, but yeah. slightly less racist. A little bit, little a little bit. <laughs> but I'll take progress. Yeah, sure. Know. It can be slow. Yep. Yep. Well, Laura, you have a great evening. I'm gonna stop the recording. All right. Lord, Lord, the nature of your not an easy path But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust